Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the REI Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Today, we welcome Jay Scott. Welcome. Hey, guys. How you doing? Thrilled to be here. Doing great, Jay. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, Jay is based in Maryland. Uh, He has practiced in many different investment vehicles. We were just talking about a racehorse investment that he was looking into. Uh, But from flipping to new construction. Uh, I see you even talking about Bitcoin. So you cover many different gamuts out there on this point. But uh, you currently, you have a, a book that's just come out, the book on negotiating real estate. So thank you very much for being here. But we always like to get a little start and uh, find out how did you first get started in real estate? Yeah. Um, so my wife and I were actually in the corporate world for a really long time. Um, we met in California back in 2006, I think it was, and we both worked for big tech companies. And when we first got together, we basically were both working 80 hours a week. She was traveling three and a half weeks a month. I was traveling two weeks a month for our jobs. And when we decided to get married, we knew that that just wasn't sustainable. Um, we both knew we wanted to have kids and having 80 hour, hundred hour work weeks with kids, just, it's not something we wanted for our family. So we just made the decision uh, when we decided to get married, we made the decision that we're going to quit our jobs. We were going to move back East closer to our families and we were going to figure out the next chapter of our lives, but it was going to be something that was going to give us the flexibility to focus on our family and focus on each other and uh, really give us the freedom to do what we wanted and when we wanted. And so um, that, ultimately, uh, that ultimately translate into real estate for us. Were there any mentors or anybody who stood out to you? You said, well, real estate just seems like a great vehicle and this is how we're going to go. And, and someone helped you apart the path or. So it's funny because a lot of people assume that we had some relationship to real estate and we picked real estate for some particular reason. Um, in reality, my wife and I are both business people. And so for us, real estate is, um, it's a vehicle. Um, real estate is no different than any other business where you're buying and selling assets or even commodities. Um, and so houses to us is, is inventory. Uh, we could be buying and selling shoes or we could own a restaurant and be buying and selling food or buying and selling toys, whatever it is. Uh, for us, the, the challenge and the exciting part is the running the business, the scaling the business, figuring out how to optimize the business, regardless of what the particular assets you're buying and selling are. And so for us, the mentorship mostly came on the business side. So having been in the corporate world for a long time, um, my wife was at eBay, I was at Microsoft for a long time. We both had a lot of great business mentors. Um, and so for us, the mentorship was more, again, on the business side than it was specifically real estate. Um, it's funny, we look back and, and my wife and I would both say that we're not really hardcore real estate people. We, we, we obviously know a good bit about real estate now, but you compare us to a lot of the, the real estate investors, the well-known real estate investors out there. We probably know a lot less about real estate than they do. Um, but where our strengths lie are on the business side and actually building businesses and scaling businesses and optimizing businesses. That is an amazing, amazing information just right there. I mean, just taking real estate as just a business. It's just another business. I mean, we all concentrate so much on real estate as this big like golden nugget, but it's the business of running real estate. 
so yeah. accounts. Let's run with that. A lot of you find that at least for newer investors, it's always the the emotional step or the limiting belief of even buying a house. It just seems like this this huge meteor that you can't get across. What's something a takeaway for for a listener of a step that they could take to to take action as a business side, not looking at it as the emotional side of buying a house? Yeah, I think that the big obstacle for a lot of people is the price tag. Um, they look at a house and they say, this is a 50000 or 100000 or $200,000 investment. Um, and they assume that the risk is um, exponentially larger than if they were buying and selling uh, a car for a couple thousand dollars or baseball cards for a hundred dollars or whatever it is that they might be buying and selling. They assume that the risk is exponentially larger. Uh, but in reality, it's not. There, there are more zeros after the number. But in reality, um, if you make good decisions, it's really hard to lose money in this business. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who they don't make a lot of money on their first property or even their tenth property. Maybe they even break even. Maybe they lose five hundred or a thousand or two hundred or two thousand um, dollars. But people tend to think if I'm dealing in a two or three or five hundred thousand dollar asset, I'm putting two or three or five hundred thousand dollars at risk, and that's that's just not true. Um, a house might be worth five hundred thousand um, dollars, but you're never going to buy it and not be able to sell it for anything. You're never going to lose five hundred thousand dollars. Now, maybe you're off by a few thousand dollars on your rehab costs. Maybe you're off by a few thousand dollars on your resale value. Maybe uh, you have to hold it for a few extra months or a few extra months, so your your holding costs are higher. But in the end, if you've built in a reasonable amount of profit, if you've been conservative with your numbers, generally the worst case is you're going to break even, you might make a couple thousand dollars, or absolutely worst case, you might lose a little bit. The only situations where I've seen people lose a whole lot of money on real estate um, is when they don't do their due diligence. They either jump in without knowing anything, um, or they buy a house without without getting the proper inspections or getting getting input from other investors on whether it's a good deal or not. If you do your due diligence, if you if you follow step one, two, three, again, you treat it like a business and not just an emotional investment, it's really tough to lose a lot of money in real estate. And and I think again that's an emotional thing. People assume with big ticket items it's easy to lose a lot of money. It's typically not easy to lose a lot of money even in real estate. Yeah. Well, this is a fantastic segue into one of the books you actually re- wrote, which was the book on estimating rehab costs. Would that be a good book for your beginner investor, actually any investor, to pick up and read to make sure they're doing their due diligence correctly? Sure. I'm not here to sell anything, <laughs> um, but I am a big fan of that book. Uh, I wrote it because... We are too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I wrote it because I didn't see anything else out on the market that tackled the subject in a way that I thought was adequate. Um, and it's a tough subject to, to tackle. A lot of people, they're looking for, and, I, and I'm, uh, let me step back, a lot of people are looking for a book that's going to tell them, this is exactly how much it's going to cost to renovate your property. A book can't tell you that. The problem is there are just too many variables. Um, location, the types of contractors you use, the time of year, how good you're negotiating ability is. Um, are you going to GC the project yourself, or are you going to... Um, hire a general contractor, Um, what type of house you're dealing with, what types of finishes are you dealing with? All these things factor into how much it's going to cost to renovate a house. So I could renovate the same house that you renovate where I spend $80,000 and you spend $40,000. And 
neither of us is right, neither of us is wrong. We're just doing things differently and our exit strategy might be different. So writing a book that tells you exactly how much something's going to cost, it's impossible. My goal with this book was to teach people the methodology for figuring out how much things cost. So the methodology for walking into a house and putting together a scope of work, basically creating a line item list of all the things that need to be done in the renovation, and then walk them through how they can go and they can get uh, prices from contractors on labor costs and prices from, from, from vendors on the material costs. So basically, I'm not telling you how much everything costs. I do have price ranges in the book. What I'm, te- what I'm doing is I'm teaching you, basically teaching you how to fish. Um, so in, instead of eating for a day, you're eating for a lifetime. You're, you're learning to estimate for a lifetime. That's great. That right there, that's an action step. Pick up this book. So Thank you. Let's talk about your business in general. How has your business evolved since you started directly with real estate to where you are today? Certainly. Um, We kind of fell into flipping houses. We started in 2008 and we were in the suburbs of Atlanta where it honestly, we were very fortunate. It was tough to make a mistake back then. Uh, You could throw a dart at at MLS listings and basically anything you hit was probably a good deal. Uh, It was easy to buy really, really low. It was tougher to sell. Um, I'm lucky my wife is, is a marketing genius, so she was very good at building our brand and, and networking with real estate agents and, and really helping us be able to sell our houses. But it was hard to make too big of mistakes in the Atlanta market back in 2008. So we fell into flipping, and because we found such a good niche there, we just kind of kept flipping houses. The first year, I think we did 14, um, and then we did like 20 to 30 a year for the next five or six years. Uh, and then what we found was the market was starting to change. And flipping became much more difficult. A lot of flippers came into the market. A lot of new investors came into the market. Prices started to rise. Hedge funds started to come in. Uh, It was tougher to get uh, REO deals or bank foreclosure deals because banks started to realize that they could start charging market value for properties. And so um, we had to constantly evolve our strategy to find more deals. So after a while, we realized we can still flip houses, um, but if we want to continue to expand and grow and scale our business, we kind of have to diversify as well. Uh, so a couple of years ago, we started moving into buy and hold, um, and we started to acquire some single-family rentals. And then over the last year, we started to acquire some multifamily, and we're now moving into more of the, uh, the apartment and multifamily space. So we're kind of doing everything we did before with the flipping, um, but we're also expanding and, and, and adding more passive income to our portfolio as well. Before we jump into that, I don't want to brush over one key, one important point that we, uh, you, uh, partner, and you and your wife are both both involved in the business with, of course, Peely and myself. So we have a lot of people that are either solo entrepreneurs or or doing it with a partner. But not all the time do we have a husband and wife team. So yes. talk to us a little bit about that. Tell us tell us how you partner on certain points. How you how you split your uh, roles and just help us understand that model because a lot of husband and wife teams have a difficult point of seeing eye to eye. We have learned a tremendous amount over the years. It took a couple of years. Uh, So my wife and I are both very much type A personalities. Um, (laughs) Again, we both came from the corporate world. We were both in senior management. Um, We're both used to being right about everything. And I remember the first year or two that we were doing this, basically every, every discussion was a debate. Um, she thought she knew everything about everything. I thought I knew everything about everything. And so every little decision in the business, uh, became an argument or not so much an argument, but a, a, um, a a debate, a debate. Exactly. 
And we found that we weren't being very efficient. Um, it wasn't particularly good for our marriage um, because we're, we're constantly debating and, and fighting. Um, and then after about a year, um, it kind of hit us that we needed to do something a little bit different. And after sitting down and talking about it, what we realized was we hadn't done a good thing. We hadn't done the thing that we were so good at in the corporate world, which was segmenting our business. I mean, you look at a company, again, she worked for eBay, I worked for Microsoft, and you look at those companies and they're very well segmented. You have groups of people that are focused on engineering, you have groups of people that are focused on marketing, you have groups of people focused on sales, groups of people focused on customer relations and customer service. And every part of the business is well segmented. And you don't see an engineer telling the customer service people how to do their job. And you don't see the product managers telling the marketing people how to do their job. Um, and it works very well because people specialize and they do what they're good at. And so when that hit us and we realized we have different sets of skills. My wife is a brilliant marketing person. Um, she's brilliant when it comes to sales. She's brilliant when it comes to branding. I'm more the numbers guy, the quantitative, sit at a spreadsheet and, and run numbers, manage contractors, things like that. Once we realize that, hey, we have a different set of skills, and if we segment our business the correct way, we can both kind of focus on those skills without kind of stepping on each other's toes. Uh, so about a year into the business, we segmented our, our company into four areas. Um, there was basically acquisitions, so buying properties. Uh, the second piece was all the rehab work. The third piece was the marketing and sales. And the fourth piece was fundraising. And there was a natural split for us. My wife was really good at acquisition and she was really good at disbursement or marketing and selling. I was really good at the rehab piece and I was really good at the fundraising piece. So we basically said, all the tasks that you're good at, you do. All the tasks that I'm good at, I do. I make all the final decisions on the stuff that's, 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 uh, that's allocated to me and you make all the final decisions on the stuff that's allocated to you. And ever since we did that, our, our, our business has run smoothly because she gets to focus on what she is fantastic at. I get to focus on what I'm really good at and, and we trust each other. That's amazing. That's Great amazing. I've, uh, we've gotten the quote before, one plus one doesn't equal two when it comes to a good partnership. Mm-hmm. One plus one can equal infinity. And it sounds like you yeah. and your wife are like, there's infinite possibilities where that yeah. could go. I love yes. it. Yeah. Thank you. Cause we see a lot of people and we've struggled with that mm-hmm. same thing ourselves in the past, just everybody being involved in one task and really not getting anywhere with it. So great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you. So let's jump into multifamily. It sounds sure. like that's where, where your business is headed for. And that's exactly where we want to be as well. So uh, specific question, or do you want me to just jump in with what we've been doing? Yeah, that's uh, what you've been doing. What were the drivers that led you to this path? And then ultimately, uh, where's your focus now? So over, I guess, since we started buying, since we started uh, real estate about 10 years ago, we've always bought single family houses as rentals. And we've typically not kept them very long. Um, I'm the type that uh, we tried managing ourselves. And then the minute a tenant would move out, I would get frustrated and say, I just can't deal with this anymore. Let's sell the house. And we've probably, yeah, exactly. We've probably bought and sold uh, 25, 30 rentals over the years. Um, in retrospect, we wish we would have kept every single one of them. <laughs> um, but finally, about two or three years ago, we said, look, we need to, to start holding real estate. Um, we, we have passive income coming in from other places, uh, but it's hard to scale passive income in most areas. And real estate is one of those places where it's a lot easier to scale passive income. And it's also a lot easier to have control of your assets. Um, I can invest in stocks. 
I have no control over what the company does, the decisions they make. Um, I can invest in, um, I can lend money to somebody, but I don't have a lot of control over how they use that money. So my returns depend on how good they are at actually taking care of the money I lend them. But in real estate, I have control over the money I'm putting into my, my assets. And so I can control the returns. I can control the management structure and how much how many headaches I have. Um, I can control the amount of time I spend, how much I want to outsource versus do myself. Um, so the, the benefits and the power of, of passive income from real estate is just tremendous because you have that control. So a couple of years ago, we realized, okay, we need to start buying rentals and we can't keep selling them. And to my wife's credit, she's been saying this for 10 years. I'm the one that made bad decisions. She gets all the credit. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I came to the realization that she was right, and we need to start holding real estate. Um, first thing we did was we started to outsource property management because that was the piece that was most frustrating to me. Um, and I'm surprised I didn't decide to do it earlier. Atlanta doesn't have a lot of really good property managers, and so we never really found any. But I decided I just have to find good property managers, and I need to outsource to kind of take out the time component for me and the frustration and the headaches. Um, and I knew once I did that, it would be a lot easier for me to hold these long-term without getting frustrated and wanting to sell them. So that was the first piece. So we started to accumulate a few single-family rentals a couple years ago. We quickly realized that um, well, single-family is great. It was hard to get any economies of scale. Um, and if you really want to get those economies of scale, if you want to make more income with fewer headaches, you want to put all the management under one roof, uh, kind of have all your properties in one place. So even if it's far away from where you live, um, you can take care of it a lot more easily. You can travel to one location instead of five locations. Um, we decided multifamily was the way to go. So about a year and a half ago, we started looking into apartment deals. Uh, we were looking at a hundred units and above and was a, the wrong time to be looking at that particular space. Uh, apartments have kind of gone through the roof the last few years. Cap rates are really, really low. Um, there's a lot of competition amongst investors who have a lot more capital than we do and a lot more experience than we do. Uh, and we just haven't been able to find anything. So a few months ago, we decided, okay, instead of looking at the 100 or 200 unit complexes, we're going to go with the mid-range stuff. So 20 to 60 units. And what we found is there's a lot of opportunity in the 20 to 60 unit space. Uh, big reason being, um, it's a lot harder than single family. Um, there are a lot of landlords who like the idea of owning one house or two houses or three houses that are terrified of owning 20 or 30 or 50 units. So we don't have the competition from the single family landlords. On the other end, the apartment investors, they hate the 20 to 80 unit complexes because they're really, really tough to manage. When you have a 300-unit complex, you hire on-site management, you bring in a company that, that manages everything, and it's, it's basically turnkey. Um, but for 20 to 80 units, you're not generating enough income that you can have full-time on-site management. You generally have to hire a part-time manager, and you have to hire part-time maintenance people, and you have to hire part-time this and part-time that. And it can be a management headache, but because it's a management headache, none of the people that are doing the bigger stuff want to touch it. So this 20 to 80 unit space or 20 to 60 unit space, you don't have the competition from the single family landlords. You don't have competition from the apartment guys or gals. Um, and so there's a lot more opportunity in that space than, than we found in any other space. And it only took us about two months to find our first property. It was a 38 unit property in, uh, in Southern Georgia and uh, closed on it about a month ago. 
Congratulations. Congratulations. It's amazing because we were literally just having that conversation about, we, we were saying, you know, between, we were actually saying, 40 to 75 because of the same reasons that that were coming up there and what we found is that you could get scattered sites of you know 30 40 you know yeah. units within this in an area and then package back into your economies of scale by having a property manager there and then and then maximizing so we've had some bigger assets and now we've been focusing on smaller just for the same reasons is that the numbers are just I, I, I can't make it work in any way, I, but I see numbers getting thrown out these days Crazy. and I, I don't understand it. Someone smarter than me has some plan in mind or they don't. I'm not sure which it is at this point, but yeah. I can't buy at that point. So we've packaged back into smaller assets and really been focusing on that for that same reason. So it's great to hear you reverberate that yeah. thought because for a minute we thought we were crazy just saying, well, what, are, what kind of management nightmare are we getting ourselves into? So. Uh- I think there are a lot of larger syndicators, hedge funds, uh, groups with lots of money that have investors, um, and they can't bear to tell their investors, we have nothing to do with your your money, we're going to give it back to you. Um, And they would rather sink their money into four cap or five cap or five and a half cap properties Mm -hmm. than say, we can't do anything with this cash and give it back. And so those are the people we're competing with um, at the 100, 200, 300 unit properties at the class A properties. Um, And you can't compete with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, so like you just said, you you don't have the competition from your single family, a small multifamily uh, investor, but as a large, like a, even at, let's say 20 to 60 to 80 units, that's still a larger number than your single family investor would want to get into. Yeah. Um, but it's still not big enough for your 100 to 200 investor. So how do you, how do you deal with the economies of scale for that that number of units. So what we're finding from a management perspective is we are picking piggybacking off of other landlords in the area that have similar properties. So um, we found a property manager who was basically managing about a hundred other units for two other property managers. And that takes up about two thirds of his time. So we essentially share him. He's, he's a timeshare. Nice. Um, we, we have a good relationship with these two other landlords. And we basically say, okay, we're all going to share this guy. And we're going to pay him for the hours he works. And if you guys need him for more hours next week, go for it. If we need him for more hours the following week, we'll take him. And it, it's really turned out to be a, a great synergistic relationship between uh, us and the other landlords and this property management company. And property manager deals with kind of all things. He deals with maintenance issues. He deals with tenant placement. He deals with evictions. And because he has three big properties, he actually has more properties for them. Um, it, it's, it's like, I think they each have two and we have one, but total of about a hundred units. But because he is a property management company is getting some economies of scale. Um, it benefits all of us as landlords. So yeah. that, that's the way we've solved this problem so far. That's, that's great. Fantastic bit, bit of information. And it's a great lesson there because a, a lots of times everybody's always into the competition. Well, I'm trying to buy this property and the next guy down the road, he's got that property and this, but working together there definitely is helping everybody. So, and that's just another way that you can get into a property where maybe you were worried because you're, you're worried about your cost of just with, you know, you got to hire a plumber every time you have a toilet or anything at that point is going to run down the street. You're going to pay more. Well, now that's another way into it where you can all win. So thank you for that. That was awesome. What is something in your business right now that, that you're struggling with or you're working to improve? Sure. Um, 
For us, we, over the last couple of years, have tried to make our business as passive as possible. Um, so we were doing 20 to 30 deals a year. We we're probably putting in 40, 50 hours a week for the first several years. And we got our business to the point where we could continue doing the 20 to 30 flips a year. Um, working probably, I, I think I was down to about two to four hours a week. My wife was probably just a couple hours a week. Um, and we we're doing a really good job of scaling the business and optimizing the business and making a flipping business as possible, as passive as, as a flipping business can possibly be. Um, you can't ever make it totally passive, but we, we got pretty close and we we're really happy. Um, but then over the last year or two, the deals have really been drying up. Um, and so what we found is um, a lot of our success at making things passive was based on the fact that we could outsource our acquisitions. Um, we could work with other wholesalers. We could work with agents who could bring us off-market deals. Um, we could work with various partners that, that had deals. And so we still had a pipeline of deals coming in without spending a whole lot of time. What we're finding is with, with the deals drying up and, and our partners and wholesalers and agents having trouble finding deals, um, in order to keep our pipeline filled, we kind of have to jump back in. And so we're no longer running a passive operation. Um, so for us, that's the biggest struggle. And I think we're just at, at a point in the, the market cycle where things are going to be tough for a little while. Um, and I have a feeling that at some point in the next couple months or the next year or so, uh, we'll probably see a little bit of a downturn or a lull, um, or we'll just start seeing uh, all the new investors that are jumping in, um, not getting the returns that they expect because the market's kind of plateauing. Um, I think a lot of new investors are successful in this part of the market because the market's going like this. They buy here, and by the time they sell six months later, mm -hmm. the, their profit's been built in, even if they made a lot of mistakes. Um, even if they bought too high or they spent too much on their rehab, six months, price goes up, and, and there's their profit. When you hit a plateau, um, you buy, and, and you're not getting that built-in appreciation to, to, to cover your mistakes. So I think um, in, in the relatively near future, we're going to see some, some investors who aren't as successful just because the market's not allowing them to be as successful. Um, and it'll probably thin the herd a little bit. Um, and if we see a downturn, I mean, at some point we're going to see a downturn, obviously, uh, when we see the downturn, I think there'll be some great opportunity there as well. So, um, that's what real estate's about. That's what any business is about. It's, it's, um, being able to be successful in any part of the cycle, uh, by finding the right opportunities and leveraging them. That's all great information. I mean, right what you said, we're all working towards more passive income. But you knew the time and the point to step in and take the reins again, whereas other investors might have been like, oh, no, I have everything covered. And all of a sudden, their business is moot. So that's fantastic information right there. Thank you. So we usually save this question for, for a little bit later, but I'm going I'm to ask it now. Yeah. You, 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 you preface that, of course, we're going to have a downturn at some point. And right now, we, we're, we're on a rise where a lot of people can make money because everything's just kind of working out, even if you make mistakes. What's an actual step a new investor can take right now to be active and, and go after deals, we'll say conservatively or, or constrictively, but still get in the game right now and, and not worry that, that the cliff's going to fall off if he buys today? Absolutely. And I, I tell everybody, again, there's opportunity in any market. So people always say, is this a bad time to be flipping? No, it's always a good time if you're smart and you're careful. Um, now it has a few additional risks that you don't have in other parts of the cycle. But again, every part of the cycle, I, I like to say that at any part of the cycle, it's either going to be really tough to buy or really tough to sell. Um, and so you can be successful in, in any part of the cycle. You just need to compensate for whether it's really hard to buy or really hard to sell. 
Um, the hardest markets are the ones that go sideways where it's kind of hard to buy and sell. But um, So what I'm telling people right now is one, um, a couple years ago, you could jump in and you could learn the business as you were, as you were um, going through it. Um, if it took you, if you bought a property and it took you a year and a half or two years to, to rehab that property and get back on the market, no problem. These days, I like to say, go in with a plan, um, know your strategy, be able to execute quickly um, because you want to buy the property and you want to get out in the next three or four or six months. Um, because the longer you're holding that property, the more likely you are to run into a point where you hit a pl- the market hits a plateau or a downturn um, and you get stuck. Um, so, and we're doing this, I mean, we've done 300 and some properties at this point and we're following the same advice. We're trying not to do any properties, not any projects, um, that we think are going to take us more than about four or six months at this point. So we're staying away from some of the larger new construction projects that we were previously doing. We're not doing any subdivision development, uh, anything that's, that we feel like we're going to be holding for more than four or six months. We're kind of either shying away from or we're demanding much, much higher returns to compensate for the extra risk. That's great. So the biggest piece of advice I would have for anybody is um, jump in with a plan and have an exit strategy that gets you out of the property in a few months as opposed to a year or two. Uh, Secondarily, I would say have multiple exit strategies. So if you're not going to be able to flip that property, if you're not going to be able to sell it to an end buyer, make sure that the numbers work for at least one or two other exit strategies. So that might be a lease option. That might be a rent to own. Uh, that might be a, um, I'll just hold it as a rental. Um, that might be to convert it to some other type of housing um, and, and make money that way while you have to hold it for two or three or four years. Um, I certainly don't think that whatever market correction we have coming. And, and again, I'm not a, a, a doomsday person. Uh, it's just there are natural business cycles. And the natural business cycle is the market goes like this every seven, eight, nine years, and we're at 10 and a half years. So mm-hmm. just statistic, statistically speaking, we're, we're due for a correction. Um, I don't think it's going to be like 2008. So I don't think people should be like uh, thinking the sky's falling. Um, but take reasonable precautions. So have extra um, exit strategies that are going to work if the flip doesn't work out. Um, and then I tell a lot of investors right now, start to hoard cash. So open up your lines of credit. If you can open up lines of credit, um, sell some of your other assets. If, if you're making money off of them and you want to lock in the gains, because once the market does correct, the good investors are going to be competing for the great deals and they're all going to have cash. Yeah. And if you want to be able to compete with those investors and, the, and for those great deals, you're going to need cash as well. So that, that's the third thing I'm telling people right now. So it, it's short time frames for your deals, have multiple exit strategies and hoard cash. That's great. Wow. Thank Talk you. about some awesome action yeah. steps. I love it. We're, we're, we, we have one project left that has a longer timeline and we've been pushing all short-term projects and we're just stuck in a variance and uh, we, we're going to see it through. We have yes. exit strategies, but it just, you know, we, we know that game too, but yeah, we're sitting here saying, hurry up, one. hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And, uh, we have one of those as well. Yep. We're about 14 months out from completion and, yep. and uh, it's the one that keeps me up at night. Exactly. Yep. That's what we're saying. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we, we're trying other ways to sell it now. And just so we, we know the game, but yeah, you're right. Timing yeah. is everything. And uh, yeah, so we know the risk with that, but that's why we're moving a lot in the short term. So that's great. Well, We'll transition to uh, some of our final questions here, and we appreciate all the time here. Thank Certainly. you so much. So what are some words you live by? 
some words I live by. I'm a big fan of priorities. Um, we got into this business. Uh, let me say it this way. Know why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and we got into this business because we wanted to put our family first. Um, and we wanted to build a lifestyle that allowed us to do that. And I see a lot of people who say, I want to get into real estate for that reason. They get into real estate and then they find themselves working 80 hours a week and ignoring their family. And, and so they, they come in with one goal and they lose sight of that. Yes. And so if your goal is just to make a lot of money, that's fine. Go in with that knowledge and, and make decisions that, that support that goal. But if you're going to go in with the goal of, I'm trying to build a lifestyle where, where I, can, I can spend time with my family like we are, then make sure you're making decisions that actually support that stated goal. Um, Fantastic. That, that's that's for us is one of the biggest things is that we really we, we try and put our business second, our family first, and and uh, and and yeah. Well, that's that was going to be my next question. What is your big why? But it seems that you've already answered you it. Jumped us on that, so yes. we'll take it. We'll take it. The family first. And with that said, where where is the focus of your business, or what is your aim over the next five years? It's a good question. Um, for us, um, we certainly have goals in terms of like just continuing to generate income, continuing to grow passive income. Um, but what we found is the, the best laid plans um, never seem to work out. And in this business, instead of trying to decide exactly what we want to do, um, we've been a little bit more opportunistic recently. So for example, I decided apartments a couple years ago and we spent a couple years looking for apartments and, and we were unsuccessful. And in retrospect, I probably should have realized earlier that, uh, that what we wanted to do wasn't going to work out for us short term. And we probably should have just moved on to other stuff instead of spending two years, wasting our time, spinning our wheels. Um, though they're, there are some good things that come out of that as well. Um, so for us, it's less about what we want to do and more the opportunities that the market provides. So over the next five years, we'd love to do more multifamily. We'd love to do some syndications. Um, we'd love to do some bigger commercial deals, but we're trying to not wet ourselves to those things. Um, and we're saying, hey, if the, the market provides that opportunity, then great. That's what we want to do. But if there are other opportunities that come along, we're certainly open to those as well. That's great. Fantastic. Is there any daily routines or morning rituals that, that you basically partake to get your day started and get your mind right? Uh, uh, you're not going to like my answer here. I am not a morning person. So That's a this, perfect answer. We've yeah, been working is, bars for many years, so we, we, <laughs> we're transitioning with kids now, and uh, it's been a interesting path. Yeah, my wife, if, if there's one thing in our lives that my wife and I like fight cats and dogs over, it's a morning routine. So she's a morning person. She's up at 4.30 every day and she's back back from the gym by, by 5 a.m. or I'm sorry, by 6 a.m. Um, and I'm getting out of bed at 7.30. <laughs> so, so my morning routine is basically try and survive long enough to get a shower and, um, and 
drink some coffee and, um, and help get the kids on the bus. Um, <laughs> so it does and, look like we should have, uh, Jay's wife on. Yeah. She said it's all right. Yeah. So. Yeah. She, she, she's the one to talk to about morning routines. Um, <laughs> oh, awesome. But that, that said, I get, I get more done between, uh, 9 PM and 2 AM than most people probably do. There you go. But see, sure. that's the thing you yeah. need to find. And this is for everybody out there. I know like a morning routine and getting up and getting the day started. I mean, that's like every, what everybody's touting. And yeah. you know, that's what I love. But if you don't work well, like you don't work well in the morning. So yeah. why force it? Exactly. You work well between the hours of nine and two. Yeah. So you're not going to force that on yourself because that's when your, your brain works the best. Exactly. So awesome. That's your routine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, for any of the listeners out there that are curious to where to find a new book, where, where is the best platform or where, where can they find the book on negotiating real estate? Uh, it is on amazon.com. Great. Fantastic. Great. And if any of our listeners want to find you, want to talk to you, what's the best way to contact you? So uh, my website is 123flip.com. The number is 123, the word flip.com. Um, and my email address is the letter J, just the letter J at 123flip.com. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank well, you. Thank you so much, Jay, for being on our show. This was Absolutely. so enlightening and yeah. amazing to have you on. Well, thank you to everybody out there for listening. This is Jason Peely for the REI Foundation podcast. Again, thank you so much to Jay Scott and thank you to all of you for listening. So grateful. We appreciate each of you listening to our show. And if you like what you hear, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rated review. Five stars. And give us some questions on Facebook. We'd love to have your questions answered by our guests on some of our next show. You can find us on Facebook at the REI Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation Podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.